Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Mormons and Masons both trace their lineage back to King Solomon's temple. Yeah, Sean, a religion, fraternity, it's got mystery, intrigue, speculation, rumor. What's real? What is a myth? Could it be they're one and the same? Well, tonight we take an inside look inside the doors of the Masonic Temple here in Utah, and we examine the strange historical ties that bind Mormons and Masons. Secret rituals, mysterious symbols, endowments, temples. Two different groups, one religious, one fraternal, intertwined through history. How closely related are Mormons and Masons? The answers might surprise you. A Mason is a man who believes in deity, however he expresses that. He can be a Mormon, a Muslim, a Methodist. That's up to him. Membership lists are secret. So, too, are Masonic modes of recognition and passwords. But a secret society? Our building stands on about a quarter block. Uh, it says Masonic Temple outside of it. Not terribly secret. Many of us wear pins. We wear rings. We have car decals. We have websites. None of that seems secret. Glenn Cook happens to be the first member of the LDS faith to be elected Grand Master of the Salt Lake Lodge in over 100 years here in Utah. The ritual that we're performing. But most of what goes on inside this temple is for Masons only. And many Masons and Mormons came together in those temples back in the 1800s. Well, when I started this dig into Mormonism, I knew that Freemasonry was linked to it, but I had no idea how deeply that rabbit hole would go, and I'm still learning. And one thing I learned from the Godmakers book and a couple of other sources is that one of the former prophets, the presidents of the Mormon church, his name was Dr. Reed C. Durham, gave a speech in 1974 
at the Nauvoo Hotel, April 20th, 1974, to the Mormon History Association. And this was a groundbreaking, very controversial speech. And I'm going to read it to you because he admits that some very important elements of Mormonism go right in line with Freemasonry. The annual convention of the Mormon History Association held in the aging historic Nauvoo Hotel on April 20th, 1974, had been pretty much routine all day like those before it. Old friends meeting once again, familiar ground gone over in an attempt to find some new light that would build faith in the prophet and strengthen testimonies of the church. The surprise came, and what a shock it was, when Dr. Reed C. Durham, Jr., the association's outgoing president, gave the traditional presidential address. As he strode to the podium with his sheaf of papers, there was a prolonged applause for a popular leader who had given himself enthusiastically to the cause of establishing a faith-promoting history of the Latter-day Saints. When the applause subsided and he began to read his carefully prepared paper on the touchy subject of the relationship between Masonry and Mormonism, a few eyebrows were raised and an uncomfortable hush settled over the uneasy listeners. No one, however, perhaps even including Dr. Jerem himself, suspected the explosive power of the bomb he was about to drop. There was no question as to the facts, nor that the information had been available to everyone present. Much of it they had heard before. The close similarities between the Mormon and Masonic temple ceremonies with their secret names, aprons, penalties, blood oaths, grips, and tokens, as well as the many Masonic markings inside and outside the Mormon temples, the square, the compass, the beehive, the astrological symbols, the all-seeing eye of occultism, and the upside-down five-pointed star. Though it was unsettling to be reminded again that absolutely nothing had been said about this. Though it was, though it was unsettling to be reminded again that absolutely nothing had been said about the secret temple rituals by Joseph Smith in the new church's 12-year history until immediately after he had been initiated into masonry. Those present had been able to shrug that off before, and did so on this occasion with only slight twinges of conscience. So what else was new? What followed near the end of Durham's talk, however, weakened with a start those who had been dozing while the lights were out for viewing his slide presentation. The audience was stunned. Why hadn't they seen this before? The connection was obvious and had always been there, clear as crystal. They just hadn't wanted to see it because the implication was too devastating. But now they had no choice. Dr. Jerem had forced them to look at something so incriminating that Joseph Smith's credentials as a prophet were torn in tatters. This is from the Godmakers. Thanks to the diligence and courage of a very few people who had brought their tape recorders, the staggering speech was soon in underground circulation. Typed copies surfaced almost immediately in such diverse places as Masonic lodges and the briefcases of BYU professors, that's Brigham Young University professors. It was awesome to see how quickly the Mormon hierarchy knew what had been said and took action because of it. The very next day, 
The angel, with its Masonic markings that Dr. Durham had referred to in his talk, was hastily removed from the visitor center display in the Nauvoo, Illinois temple, never to be seen in public again. Professor Durham himself barely escaped being removed from the church by writing a hasty, to whom it may concern, letter reaffirming his faith in the prophet Smith and the church he founded. After explaining about the Jupiter talisman found on Joseph Smith at his death, the occult powers associated with it, and the fact that his mother's family identified this as Joseph's Masonic jewel, Dr. Durham reminded his audience that he had set out to provoke some thought and present something new concerning the undeniable relationship between Mormonism and Masonry. He said, If I have not succeeded in doing that by now, please indulge me on one last further attempt. Then, he launched into a brief summary of a famous legend, which the Grand Orator elaborates in lecture form in the ceremonies of the 13th, 14th, and 21st degrees of Masonry, bearing remarkable similarity to Mormonism. Referring to the ancient roots of this tale in Kabbalistic lore and mythology, Durham then pointed out that the legend was in American Masonic print by 1802, and by Joseph Smith's time, many publications had made the legend popularly well disseminated. The summary he then gave of the legend must have stunned his Mormon audience, for it contains not only the key esoteric doctrines of Mormonism, as they evolved beyond the original semi-orthodoxy of the Book of Mormon, but also the major elements in Joseph Smith's story, including his role in finding and translating the alleged gold plates. In his introductory summary of the Masonic legend, Dr. Jerome said, In the pre-existence, there was a special secret doctrine that was given by deity to the earth, first to Adam, who was to carefully guard this secret doctrine because it contained all the mysteries, including the secret name of God. Adam then bestowed it upon his son Seth, who guarded it very carefully among the inner circle of believers, and then it was handed down until it came to Enoch, the central figure in the legend. It is with Enoch that the remarkable resemblances with Joseph Smith and the Mormon history become disconcertingly clear. The similarities between this ancient Masonic legend about Enoch and the mythology that Joseph Smith managed to establish concerning his alleged exploits in finding and translating the gold plates are too numerous and exact to allow any other explanation than the most obvious one. As Dr. Jerem said that night to his stunned audience of fellow Mormon historians, the parallels to the legend of Enoch and of Joseph Smith and the history of Mormonism are so unmistakable that to explain them only as coincidence would be ridiculous. In the legend, you guys have heard me talk about the legend of Enoch and the, the different legends in masonry in past shows, but we'll go back over this again. In the legend, Enoch was 25 years old when he received his call and vision as was Joseph Smith when he brought forth his sacred record. Enoch's vision was of a hill containing a vault prepared for sacred treasures, on which he saw the identifying letter M, while Joseph Smith was led by an angel whose name began with M. 
to a similar hill containing an underground vault like Enix, filled with sacred treasures. Part of the treasures revealed to Enoch were gold and brass plates engraved with Egyptian hieroglyphics, giving the history of the world and ancient mysteries of God. Keep in mind, this is the Masonic legend, which he preserved by putting them in the vault in the hill. Similarly, Joseph Smith recovered from a vault in a hill gold and brass plates engraved with Egyptian hieroglyphics containing ancient history and mysteries of God. Enoch's treasure also included a metal ball, a priestly breastplate, and the fabled Urim and Thummim, that's the two stones of Joseph Smith, precisely the same objects that were found by Joseph Smith along with the gold plates. If the above sounds like it's impossible, there's more. Joseph Smith often referred to himself in the Revelations as Enoch, claiming that he had been given this name by God. The Enoch of the legend was chosen to recover and preserve for mankind the sacred name of God, and Joseph Smith was allegedly chosen to recover and restore the everlasting gospel of God to earth. Enoch buried the sacred record to preserve it just before a great disaster, the great flood, foreseeing that after the deluge, an Israelitish descendant, would discover anew the sacred buried treasure. Enoch placed a stone lid or slab over the cavity into the hill, exactly as Moroni did in the Book of Mormon, when he buried his record as the only survivor of the disaster or great battle that destroyed his entire nation. Joseph Smith, who recovered this record, claimed to be an Israelite, fitting the vision of Enoch even in this regard. Of course, in the Masonic legend, it was Solomon and his builders, the Masons, while building and excavating for the temple at Mount Moriah, who discovered the cavern and the sacred treasure. The legend relates that, like Joseph Smith, they were able to obtain it only after three unsuccessful attempts. Three wicked men, however, tried to force one of the faithful Masons, Hiram Abiff, or Hiram the widow's son, to reveal the hiding place and the contents of the hidden treasure. He would not tell them, and as they were killing him, Hiram, with his hands, cried out, O Lord, my God, is there no help for the widow's son? This has since become a general Masonic distress call. There were three faithful Masons who pursued the villains and cut off the head of one of them with his own sword. Dr. Jerome ended his disquieting talk by summarizing some of the other coincidences involved. Joseph Smith had three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, and the record itself bears witness that an arch-villain named Laban, who was thwarting the availability of the sacred records, had his head cut off by his own sword. Now these parallels, dramatic as they seem, still do not represent the strangest part of the story. All of these aspects of the legend seem transformed into the history of Joseph Smith, so much so that it even appears to be a kind of symbolic acting out of Masonic lore. But there is a point in this drama where the action goes beyond metaphor and the symbol merges into a tragic reality. This has to do, of course, with the death of Hiram Abiff in the Masonic legend and the martyrdom, allegedly, of Joseph Smith. 
Joseph Smith gave himself up to be imprisoned on June 27, 1844. A mob stormed in the Little Carthage Jail. Hiram Smith was killed instantly. That is Joseph's brother. That was Joseph's brother, Hiram. Isn't that interesting that his name was Hiram and the main character in the Masonic legend is Hiram? And I've seen it written in several books by different Masonic authors, or excuse me, different Mormon authors, that they believe that Joseph Smith Sr., the father, purposely named his son Hiram after that legend because Masonry was so popular at that time. Joseph Smith, Master Mason and Widow's son, went to the window and with his hands upraised, commenced giving the Masonic distress call to the fraternal Masons who were present in the mob. Oh, Lord, my God. Reportedly, he was unable to complete his plea and fell out the window to his death. And it goes on to say, How does a Mormon historian interpret Joseph Smith and the Masonic Enoch legend? The parallels demand an answer. Was it Joseph Smith the fruition of Enoch's prophecy? Did mysterious and divine, even magical forces, attach themselves to him? Can anyone deny that Masonic influence on Joseph Smith and the church either before or after his personal Masonic membership? The evidence demands comments. I do not believe that the Nauvoo story can adequately be told without an inquiry into Freemasonry. In fact, Masonry played a key role in the myths in which Joseph Smith wrapped Mormonism. As we shall see, Joseph's brother Hiram was a member of the Mount Moriah Lodge, number 112, in Palmyra, New York. Its responsibility was the perpetuation of the legend of Enoch, the cloth from which much of the fabric of Mormonism was formed. Again, that's from the Godmakers. Now, I wanted to look at other things that Mormonism and Masonry have in common, and so I've made a list here that continues to grow. Now, it's on record that at least 30 people close to Joseph Smith in their original church were Freemasons. It says here, of course, his brother, as we mentioned, Hiram, Hebert C. Kimball, who was an apostle in the original Mormon church, John Smith, the prophet's uncle, Newell K. Whitney, a bishop, and George Miller, another bishop. And we know that Brigham Young was inducted into Freemasonry, and there's pictures of him actually wearing the compass, and the scale. Also, the LDS adopted the beehive symbol, and it may be featured in the Book of Mormon when it states that the Jaredites carried with them Deseret, which by interpretation is a honeybee. And they have a magazine, I believe, or maybe it's a newspaper, probably online now, called the Deseret. We know in Freemasonry, I think I've talked about this before, but the honeybee there symbolizes unity, organization, and obedience. Now we go back to before Joseph Smith's time. A professor at Dartmouth named John Smith, who was cousin, first cousin of Azale Smith, who was Joseph's grandfather, established and ran the theology department at Dartmouth prior to Hiram's arrival. His brother Hiram actually attended there for a while. John became a professor of learned languages, studied exotic dialects, and published Hebrew grammar in 1803. He 
He even pastored the Church of Christ at Dartmouth College until 1804. And he was also a Freemason who taught that the American Indians were descendants of the Hebrews. There was a Freemason lodge above the store which Joseph Smith owned and his brother attended. And this would be the first meeting places of the Mormon church. General John W. Phelps was appointed to try and get the Mormons back in line because there was some talk that they may be trying to take over the United States, which was the plan, but it never quite happened. But he said that the whole miserable thing had its rise in masonry. He said that about the Mormons. Former Mason Mervyn Hogan said, It must be readily acknowledged that Mormonism and Freemasonry are so intimately and inextricably interwoven and interrelated that the two can never be dissociated. Utah historian J.H. Beadle stated, Much of the Mormon endowment will be recognized as extracted from Morgan's Freemasonry expose. He's talking about Captain William Morgan, who was the guy who spilled the beans on Freemasonry. His death was really why the third party, America's first third party, was started, the Anti-Masonic Party. And we'll get deeper into that because there's more of a connection there. He says, by those familiar with that work, talking about Morgan's work on Freemasonry, his book, and the origin of this is quite curious. Some years after in Nauvoo, there, Joseph Smith outmasoned Solomon himself and declared that God had revealed to him a great key word, which had been lost, and that he would lead masonry to far higher degrees, and not long after their charter was revoked by the Grand Lodge. How much of masonry proper has survived in the endowment, the writer will not pretend to say. But the Mormons are pleased to have the outside world connect the two and convey the impression that this is celestial masonry. Oliver Cowdery, who allegedly helped translate and write the Book of Mormon, was a member of the Harmony Lodge. His father and his brothers were also masons of the Royal Arch degree, which was higher than the regular blue degree masonry. The Cowderies were cousins to the Smiths, and there were many Cowderies as well as Smiths in the beginning of the Mormon church. Two other founders of the Mormon church, Sidney Rigdon was a member of the Nauvoo Lodge, and John Rigdon was a Royal Arch Mason. Sidney Rigdon was with Joe Smith when they retranslated the King James Bible. And it says here that they wrote the book of Moses that had direct analogies to the mythology of pure primitive Freemasonry. His brother Hiram, the Mason, became the leading force behind building the Mormon temples and establishing Masonic lodges in Nauvoo. Joe Smith and Jacob Cochran got some knowledge and borrowed it from Spalding's manuscript and made the Mormon Bible. This, together with Freemasonry in Morgan's book, which Smith and Cochran studied, and Smith's observations on the kidnapping of William Morgan, made him quite popular. Mormonism was introduced, and quite a number fell in with it. 
That was from author Samuel D. Green. Joseph Smith even took the five points of fellowship, which is a Masonic greeting that we've talked about in past episodes on Freemasonry. He incorporated that into the endowment process. And it's even called that. They didn't even change the name. And of course, his seer stone, we know how important stones are in Freemasonry, the Philosopher's Stone. You yourself are a stone, you are a rough ashlar stone, and you're polishing your stone, you're polishing your knob until you're perfect. The grips or handshakes and the hand or call signs in Mormonism are taken directly from Freemasonry, just given new meanings. The compass and the square are actually on this infamous Mormon underwear, just a little embroidered compass on one side and square on the other. Now, in the endowment process also, if it's a male and female, they're given an apron, allegedly to hide themselves, like in the Garden of Eden when they're given figs. But, of course, we know that Freemasons wear aprons as well. They've got different types of aprons that mean different things. And then there's also a Lucifer character in the endowment process who has another apron. And we're going to talk more about that and what is said about it, but I just wanted you to be aware. There's also the Melchizedek or the Melchizedek, however you pronounce that. I've heard it both ways. And the Aaronic priesthoods. And those are taken from different degrees in Freemasonry. And getting back to William Morgan, who was killed for revealing the secrets of Freemasonry. And the story goes that he had a falling out. He wanted to start his own lodge, and for whatever reason, they wouldn't approve it. So he decided he was going to write a tell-all book with all their secrets, their hand signs, call signs, their rituals, everything. And he was eventually killed. And it was proven that there were a whole bunch of Freemasons in different states who were in on driving horses and a buggy, I think over 100 miles, maybe 120, 140 miles, and allegedly dumping his body in the river which a body did finally wash up months later. Now, the interesting thing is Joseph Smith and his family only lived one town over from William Morgan, and they had many mutual friends. It says here, the membership of the Milner Lodge in Victor, number 303, was around 80 members. Mormon brother Heber C. Campbell, a potter made by trade, was one of the 12 apostles of the Latter-day Saints Church and a member of the Milner Lodge. I thought this was fascinating. After William Morgan's death, his wife, Lucinda Pendleton Morgan, married a friend of Joseph Smith named George Harris, who was also a Mormon. Now, later on, Joseph Smith and his wife, Emma, would stay with the other couple for several weeks in the Mormon settlement in far west Missouri. Wife of Prophet Orson Pratt said later on it was at this time that Joseph Smith began an affair with Lucinda. Later, Lucinda and George would come back and live near Joseph Smith. And after he was allegedly killed, Lucinda became a plural wife of Joseph Smith. And immediately after that, she divorced George Harris. So yes, you can marry someone after they die in Mormonism. There was even a couple of people who testified that Joseph Smith and William Morgan were friends. And four of the men accused of killing William Morgan 
were in the Milner Lodge with Hebert C. Kimball, one of the prophets that we mentioned a minute ago. Another interesting thing, the first baptism for the dead in Mormonism in 1841 was the baptism of William Morgan after his death. It was the first under the new rite to posthumously take people into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for eternity. That was John E. Thompson, the Mormon baptism of William Morgan. Masonry really uh, took root in Nauvoo, and uh, by the end of 1843, there were between 1,500 and 2,000 Latter-day Saints that uh, belonged to the Masonic fraternity. The Masons were not always inclusive when it came to the Mormon religion. The rift intensified when Joseph Smith, a Nauvoo Mason, started taking liberties with certain Masonic ceremonies. LDS historian Ken Godfrey. Joseph Smith was accused of violating his Masonic oath and pledges by uh, initiating women into the Masonic order. Brigham Young was absolutely convinced that Joseph Smith was giving the Masonic distress signal at the time of his death and that no Masons in, in the group were willing to respond and, and come to his aid. Were the Mormons and Masons involved in a power struggle over ideology or ritual? Both trace their rites and ceremonies back to King Solomon's temple. Now if you compare the temple endowment with masonry, there's about 40 words and phrases that are the same in both ceremonies. And they're so much the same that you would probably have to uh, uh, take the stand that those were borrowed by Joseph Smith. Most masons agree that any Masonic involvement in Smith's death was coincidence. A coincidence that further divided the two groups. So the flavor you get is that Masons killed Joseph Smith, a brother Mason, who were then judged by Masons and acquitted of their crime. Now that leaves a bad taste in your mouth. For 60 years, Mormons and Masons did not mix. The Masons lifted the ban on Mormon membership in 1984. We as a fraternity have put behind us uh, the animosity that existed at that time. Regardless of whatever platform you're listening to the Oddcast on, may I suggest you get on over to alternatecurrentradio.com and check out all their fine music and talk shows. That's my podcasting family. You can find the Oddcast there, but many other great shows like their flagship, The Boiler Room. Let me tell you, they've been great to me, and they intend on bringing you the unfiltered truth in the new era. So if you want to support something real, support alternatecurrentradio.com and tell them the odd man sent you. Thanks. Now here's something else that's pretty interesting that's connected to Freemasonry. Remember in one of the episodes, I think it was the last show I did on Freemasonry, we talked about the Order of Quetzalcoatl. And I know that... The occult rejects have done extensive research on this order of Freemasonry. It says here, An ancient Central American Aztec god, believed by many Mormons in the past to be Jesus Christ, who visited the Americas after his resurrection. The name means plumed serpent and is derived from a colorful bird, the Quetzal, and snake, Quetzal, Quetzalcoatl under a variety of names as presented in the traditions of the Indians of North, Central, and South America. 
They say it's none other than Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. As was maintained by Mormon president John Taylor, it says that many modern Mormon scholars have abandoned this theory, but that's what they used to teach. In trying to find the historical support for the Book of Mormon visit of Christ to America just after his resurrection, Mormons have grasped at the legends of Quetzalcoatl. Milton R. Hunter states, Quetzalcoatl could have been none other than Jesus Christ, the Lord and God of this earth, and the Savior of the human family. Thus, Jesus and Quetzalcoatl are identical. The tradition of Quetzalcoatl dates from about 2000 B.C., when this mythical deity to whom human sacrifices were offered began to be represented as a feathered serpent. The feathered serpent cult was rampant throughout the Americas during the alleged Book of Mormon period. The only benign figure associated with the myth was a Toltec king who took the name of Quetzalcoatl between 950 and 1000 AU and was banished by the bloodthirsty priests a bit late to be confused with an alleged visit of Jesus Christ to America. The Mormon leader's persistence in this fantasy says as much about their Jesus Christ as it does about their honesty. Milton R. Hunter's attitude is typical. In his book about Christ's alleged visit to America, after expounding upon the relationship of the feathered serpent of the Americas to the plumed serpent of Egypt and the serpent in the Garden of Eden, Hunter goes on to say, In this chapter and throughout the book, the serpent will be presented as a symbol of Quetzalcoatl or Jesus, and no further reference will be made to its identification with the Prince of Darkness or Lucifer. Having called the serpent's lie to Eve, the truth, and having made his seductive promise of the godhood, their ultimate goal, and having accepted his offer of the fig leaf apron, patterned after his own Masonic apron, and having adopted this emblem of Satan's power and priesthoods, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, as the most prominent part of their priesthood temple clothing to be worn in the life and in death, that's right, they have to wear, they have to be buried with those temple clothes, including their apron. It's not surprising that Mormons also identify their Christ with the plumed serpent deity, Quetzalcoatl. The comments in the Masonic Entered Apprentices Handbook concerning the serpent depicted on the Masonic apron provides further evidence of the occult roots and meaning behind the all-seeing eye, apron, beehive, square and compass, grips or special handshakes, moon, star, sun, and other secret signs and symbols pertaining to Mormonism's Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods, all of which Joseph Smith borrowed directly from Masonry. The serpent is regarded as the shining one, the holy wisdom itself. Thus we see that the serpent on our apron denotes that we are encircled by the holy wisdom. The snake is associated with the Hindu god Shiva, the destroyer, whose close symbolic association with the third Masonic degree is obvious. He is depicted making the sign of a master mason. That last part was again from the Godmakers. But I guess that shouldn't surprise us because their second prophet, Brigham Young, once said, Every earth has its redeemer, and every earth has its tempter, and every earth and the people thereof, in their turn and time, 
receive all that we receive and pass through all the ordeals that we are passing through. And one more thing on the Freemasonry front. In 1839, after having been expelled from Missouri, Joseph Smith and his fellow Mormon pioneers purchased land along the Mississippi River in Illinois. They named the town Nauvoo. Nauvoo was the center of early Mormon activity from its inception in 1839 until the murder, allegedly, of Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram in 1844. During this five-year period, three Masonic lodges were founded in Nauvoo. The lodge members were all LDS members, drawn exclusively from Nauvoo's Mormon community. The largest of these lodges, with a membership exceeding 1,500, was called the Nauvoo Lodge. I mentioned this before, but the initial expanded endowment ceremonies for Mormonism in 1842 took place in the same second-floor room above Joseph Smith's store that Smith and the others were initiated into Freemasonry a few months before. In short, there was a lot of Mormon and Masonic activity in Nauvoo. Now, we've covered a little bit of this before, but let's go over it. In The Mormon Conspiracy, he also says, What was happening at the same time with Mormonism is quite clear. On May 4th, 1842, less than two months after Joseph Smith had been initiated into Masonry, he introduced what is known as the Mormon Temple Endowment Ceremony. It was the Masons among the Mormons first to be initiated by the Prophet into these secret rites, which can only be called Mormon Masonry. Jesse C. Littlefield testified, The angel of the Lord brought to Mr. Joseph Smith the lost keyword of several Masonic degrees, which caused him, when he appeared among the Brotherhood of Illinois, to work right ahead of the highest and to show them their ignorance of the greatest truth and benefits of Masonry. At about the same time, Joseph Fielding wrote in his Masonic diary, Many have joined the Masonic institution. This seems to have been a stepping stone for preparation for something else, the true origin of Masonry. This I have also seen and rejoice in it. There has been great light poured out upon the saints of late, and great spirit of hearing. I have evidence enough that Joseph Smith is not fallen. I have seen him. After giving, as he said before, the origin of Masonry, the kingdom of God on earth, am myself a member. Now let's talk a little bit about the Mormon endowment and what it entails. It says here, a major portion of the secret rituals that take place in Mormon temples is called the Mormon endowment. Part of it involves a creation drama that puts most temple patrons to sleep. This is followed by a reenactment on film or stage of events in the Garden of Eden. After he and his wife, Eve, have been expelled from the Garden of Eden into a lonely and dreary world, Adam builds an altar and cries out, O God, hear the words of my mouth. When he has repeated this three times, an arrogant voice responds, I hear you. Lucifer then enters the scene. Sauntering over to Adam, he asks, What is it you want? Who are you? demands Adam, in surprise. I am the God of this world, replies Lucifer. It says, strangely enough, when you confront a Mormon about Mormonism being polytheistic, many gods, they say, 
the phrase, we only worship the God of this world. Now, earlier in the Garden of Eden sequence, Mormons going through the temple, the temple patrons, watch the unfolding drama as Lucifer instructs Adam and Eve that there is no way for them to gain knowledge to become as gods except to disobey the Father and eat of the forbidden fruit. See, in Mormonism, as we've learned, Lucifer is not a fallen angel. He is the rebellious son of God, brother of Jesus. Mormonism also teaches that Satan told Eve the truth, that Adam and Eve didn't sin in disobeying God, and that the fall was really a blessing in disguise that opened the door to godhood for the Mormons. Now, Lucifer, at that point in the endowment, has appeared and is wearing an embroidered apron, very similar to the one Masons wear in their secret rituals. This is from Godmakers, and I know that Masons have several different aprons. Partaking of the forbidden fruit and having now become wise, Adam notices Lucifer's apron and asks him what it means. This is important here, if it's true. Satan then replies, It is the emblem of my power and priesthoods. Having said that, Lucifer directs Adam and Eve to fashion similar aprons for themselves. He excitedly and slyly cries, See, you are naked. Take some fig leaves and make yourselves aprons. Father will see you, your nakedness. Quick, hide. In this flurry of activity, the unwary temple patron may miss the subtle truth just revealed. The very emblems that Lucifer claims are the emblems of his power and priesthoods are sewn into the temple undergarment that each patron is now wearing under all the temple clothing, sewn to the navel, knee, and breast of this magic underwear, acquired in the washing and anointing ritual in the basement of the temple. As soon as Adam and Eve have tied their luciferic aprons about them, the ceremony narrator instructs the temple patrons to place their own fig leaf aprons on as part of the temple costume brought with them or supplied over the beautiful temple clothing. As obedient to Satan as Adam and Eve have been, each Mormon going through the temple solemnly puts on the fig leaf apron. In contrast, the Bible indicates that God refused to accept Adam and Eve's fig leaf aprons as a covering for their nakedness. Instead, he clothed them in the skins of animals. With this emblem of Lucifer's power in priesthoods, Covering the elaborate pleated robes of the Mormon priesthood they are wearing, the patrons proceed through the entire endowment ceremony that is so sacred and important on the Mormon path to godhood. Astonishing as it may seem, Temple Mormons are married and buried in the fig leaf apron that their own doctrine identifies as the symbol of Lucifer's power and priesthoods. I was sharing about how I used to stand at the veil at the conclusion of the ritual with my arms inserted into the slits in the veil that matched the slits in my undergarment as I embraced the man portraying the Lord on the other side. As I would stand there, foot to foot, knee to knee, hand to back, mouth to ear, that's the five points of fellowship, I would whisper, health in the navel, marrow in the bones, strength in the loins, and power in the priesthood be upon me and my posterity. As I reached that point in my narration, it suddenly dawned on me for the very first time that in this temple ritual, I had been up to my armpits in the very same emblems that were on Lucifer's apron 
in the Garden of Eden scene at the beginning of the temple ceremonies. They were the same emblems that were on the sacred garments I would wear under my clothes. Yet Lucifer had clearly said that these were the emblems of his power and priesthoods. That's what Lucifer says in the endowment ritual when he approaches Adam and Eve. Only the best of feelings should be should exist in the circle. If any of you have unkind feelings toward any member of this circle, you are invited to withdraw so that the spirit of the Lord may be unrestrained. In the circle, we make the signs of all the tokens of the holy priesthood. We will begin by making the sign of the first token of the Aaronic priesthood. This is done by bringing the right arm to the square, the palm of the hand to the front, the fingers close together, and the thumb extended. This is the sign. The name of this token is the new name received in the temple today. We will now make the sign of the second token of the Aaronic priesthood. This is done by bringing the right hand in front of you with the hand in cupping shape, the right arm forming a square, and the left arm being raised to the square. This is the sign. The name of this token is your first given name if you are going through the temple for your own endowment. Or, if you are going through for the dead, it is the first given name of the person for whom you are officiating. We will now make the sign of the first token of the Melchizedek priesthood, or sign of the nail. This is done by bringing the left hand in front of you, with the hand in cupping shape, a left arm forming a square. The right hand is also brought forward, the palm down, the fingers close together, with the thumb extended. This is the sign. The name of this token is the sun, meaning the son of God. We will now make the sign of the second token of the Melchizedek priesthood, the patriarchal grip or short sign of the nail. This is done by raising both hands high above the head, and while lowering the hand, repeating three times the words, O oh God, hear the words of my mouth. In Scottish Rite Freemasonry, the 19th level is called the Degree of the Grand Pontiff. And during the ritual, the Master Mason anoints the initiate with oil on the crown of his head. And he says, Be thou a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, looking at the Aaronic priesthood, of course, during the ritual, they have certain things that they say. And this is the first token of the priesthood in Mormonism. I do covenant and promise that I will never reveal the first token of the Aaronic priesthood, together with its accompanying penalty sign and penalty. Rather than do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. Then, in the Masonic first degree... The initiate says, I will never reveal any part or parts, art or arts, point or points of the secret arts and mysteries of ancient Freemasonry, binding myself under no less a penalty than to have my throat cut across, my tongue torn out at the roots. Then the candidate is told, draw your right hand across your throat, the thumb next to your throat, your arm as high as the elbow in a horizontal position. Now, in the LDS second token of the priesthood, the initiate is told, We and each of us do covenant and promise that we will not reveal the secrets of this, the second token of the Aaronic priesthood, with its accompanying name, sign, grip, or penalty. 
Should we do so, we agree that we have our breasts cut open and our hearts and vitals torn from our bodies and given to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. The sign is made by placing the left arm on the square at the level of the shoulder, placing the right hand across the chest with the thumb extended and then drawing it in rapidly from left to right and dropping it to the side. The Masonic Second or Fellowcraft Degree. The initiate says, I am bound under no less a penalty than to have my left breast torn open and my heart and vitals taken from thence and thrown over my left shoulder and then carried into the valley of Jehoshaphat, there to become a prey to the wild beasts of the field and the vulture of the air. The sign is given by drawing your right hand flat with the palm of it next to your breast, across your breast from left to right with some quickness and dropping it down by your side. The Masonic third degree, Master Mason, I am bound under no less a penalty than to have my body severed into the midst and divided to the north and south, my bowels burnt to ashes in the center. The penal sign is given by putting the right hand to the side of the bowels, the hand open with the thumb next to the belly and drawing it across the belly and letting it fall. This is done tolerably quick. This alludes to the penalty of the obligation having my body severed in twain. The first token of the Melchizedek priesthood. Did I say Melchizedek before or Melchizedek? I can never remember, but anyway. We agree that our bodies cut asunder in the midst and our bowels gush out. As the last words are spoken, the hands are dropped till the thumbs are in the center of the stomach and drawn swiftly across the stomach to the hips and then dropped to the sides. Now, we talked about earlier in the show how a Dr. Reed Durham, who was president of the Mormon Church, had given a speech in the 70s revealing how Joseph Smith had ripped off Freemasonry and their whole myth and a lot of other things. And it really was a shocker to the Mormon crowd. This is a little bit more from that speech. Dr. Durham documented the part that Masonry played and gave substantial evidence concerning its undeniable dominating influence in the formation of Mormonism. He said, I am convinced that in the study of Masonry lies a pivotal key to the further understanding of Joseph Smith and the Mormon Church. The many parallels found between early Mormonism and Masonry of that day are substantial. Conferences, councils, priesthood, temples, anointing with oil, the issuance of licenses, certificates for identifying legitimate fellow workers called temple recommends, elders, high priests, and even the book of the law, plus things Egyptian, the new revelation of suns and moons, governing planets and fixed stars, while unique at the time to Mormonism, were commonplace in Freemasonry. And I'm sorry if I'm repeating this, but I thought, well, it may be worth repeating anyway. In June 8th, 1873, at the Tabernacle in Salt Lake City, the president, Brigham Young, told his people, the devil told the truth. I do not blame Mother Eve. I would not have had her miss eating the forbidden fruit for anything in the world. They must pass through the same ordeals as the gods that they may know good from evil. 
Former President Joseph Fielding Smith stated, The fall of man came as a blessing in disguise. I never speak of the part Eve took in this fall as a sin, nor do I accuse Adam of a sin. We can hardly look upon anything resulting in such benefits as being a sin. Apostate Pratt wrote, If we take a million of worlds like this and number their particles, we should find that there are more gods than there are particles of matter in the worlds. The gods who dwell in the heaven have been exalted, also from fallen men to celestial gods, to inhabit their heaven forever and ever. Another early teaching from the Mormon church was that Joseph Smith taught that the moon was inhabited by people who dressed like Quakers. With Philo Dibble, a close associate of Joseph Smith, as his source, writer Oliver B. Huntington wrote with significant detail, The inhabitants of the moon are more of a uniform size than the inhabitants of the earth, being about six feet in height. They dress very much like the Quaker style and are quite general in style or the one fashion of dress. They live to be very old, coming generally near a thousand years. This is the description of them as given by Joseph the seer, as he could see whatever he asked the Father in the name of Jesus to see. Huntington was quoted in the Young Woman's Journal, which was adopted as the official magazine for the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association in 1897. Astronomers and philosophers have from time to time, until very recently, asserted that the moon was uninhabited, that it had no atmosphere. But recent discoveries through the means of powerful telescopes have given scientists a doubt or two upon the old theory. Nearly all great discoveries of men in the last half century have in one way or another, either directly or indirectly, contributed to prove Joseph Smith to be a prophet. As far back as 1837, I know that he said the moon was inhabited by men and women the same as this earth, and that they live to a greater age than we do, that they live generally to near the age of 1,000 years. He described the men as averaging near six feet in height and dressing quite uniformly in something near the Quaker style. In my patriarchal blessing, given by the father of Joseph Smith the prophet in Kirtland in 1837, I was told that I should preach the gospel before I was 21 years of age, that I should preach the gospel to the inhabitants upon the islands of the sea and to the inhabitants of the moon, even the planet you can now behold with your eyes. Huntington's account fit with the larger context of the Latter-day Saint teachings and beliefs. Author Dan Vogel notes the following. The statement in Abraham 3.5 that the moon is greater than the earth would hardly make sense if the moon were a desolate globe. Of course, the pronouncements of Oliver Cowdery and Hiram Smith that every star and planet was inhabited implied an inhabited moon. Like their contemporaries, Mormons were fascinated with possible inhabitants on the planet closest to the earth. Encouraged by the recent spectroscopic discoveries, which indicated that the moon had an atmosphere, Oliver B. Huntington related in 1892 an occasion on which Joseph Smith was purported to have expressed his belief that the moon was inhabited by men and women the same as this earth. An article entitled, Are the Worlds Inhabited? 
appeared in the Latter-day Saints Millennial Star in 1882 to defend the Mormon position against the advances made by science. To the question, is the moon inhabited? Astronomers have returned a definite negative answer. It has been claimed that the moon is a dead world, without atmosphere, without vegetation, without moisture, and consequently without inhabitants. But on this subject, the Latter-day Saints have the advantage of a little definite information that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. That is from the doctrines and covenants of the LDS. The worlds are inhabited, millions of them. They form the abode of the offspring of deity, birthplaces, probation planets, prison houses, spirit spheres, paradises, homes for the resurrected, glorified sons for perfected and celestial intelligence, all moving in their respective orbits, governed by fixed laws adapted to their condition and that of their inhabitants. First-generation Mormons resisted any changes in their cosmological concepts. To them, these were not just ideas or theories. They explained reality as they knew it. I just wanted to throw this tidbit in here. So the grandfather of Hiram and Joe, I'll say L, the father of Joe Sr., helped found a Universalist Society in Toonbridge in 1797. And he wrote a letter in 1799 to his family emphasizing his belief in universalism. In 1804, he angrily, through Freemason Thomas Paine's book, Age of Reason, which some say is an attack on Christianity and a thinly veiled defense of Masonic deism, at his son Joseph and his wife Lucy when they began attending Methodist meetings. He ordered them to read it until they believed it. Joseph Smith Jr. later referred to his Mormon kingdom of God as the kingdom as prophesied by Daniel, and he named his secret police as the Danites. Solomon Mack, the other grandfather of Joe and Hiram, was not religious until later on in life when he became a Christian. Joe Sr. never officially joined a church until his sons started the Mormon one. Neighbors testified that the mother of Hiram and Joe, Lucy Smith, for a time charged a fee to tell fortunes looking through her peepstone. And as we mentioned before, when Joseph Smith died, he had on an amulet, which turned out to be a Jupiter talisman, just like you would find in a magic book with a K. And his brother Hiram left behind several papers with all kinds of different occult symbolism. Now, a little bit on inconsistency. We learned in the first episode on Mormonism that Joseph Smith claims he was visited by a pillar of light, an angel, or God in Jesus, depending on which of the first revelations you believe. They told him that all the different sects of Christianity were wrong, that you should not join any of them. Well, it turns out it's on record that in June 1828, eight years later, Joseph Smith Jr. joined the Methodist Church in Harmony, Pennsylvania. It says, in retelling the same tale, 
to Alexander Nebar on May 24, 1844, Joseph Smith specifically singled out the Methodist Church as being unworthy of his membership. Mr. Nebar's diary recorded the divine warning as related by Joseph Smith. Mr. Smith then asked, Must I join the Methodist Church? No, they are not my people. They have gone astray. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Goes on to say, Perhaps the death of his firstborn son on June 15, 1828, induced him to seek membership in the church his wife had belonged to since she was seven years old. Joseph had told his neighbor, Joshua McCune, that his, Smith's firstborn child, was to translate the characters and hieroglyphics upon the plates into our language at the age of three years old. That was from the newspaper, the Susquehanna Register, May 1st, 1834. When this child died at birth instead, and his wife's life also hung in danger, Smith may have considered entirely abandoning his project of writing a book and decided to join the Methodist Church. It says, like so many of the early Methodist records, many of the church logs are lost, so we'll never know for certain whether Joseph remained a member for only three days or six months or however. There was never any dispute, though, that he did become a member, and by this one act, he undercut the story he later put forth in that God in a special vision had instructed him specifically not to join the Methodist Church. All right, guys, that concludes Perception in the Mind Part 2, my dive on Mormonism and Masonry. And there's no question they have a strong tie, a strong link. Much of Mormonism was based on Freemasonry, along with the Bible and other books like Spalding's Manuscript and others. And we may get more into that eventually one day, the other influences. We'll definitely be doing one or two more episodes on Mormonism. I just kept finding more and more books, more and more things. There's the Mountain Meadows Massacre. There is alleged poisonings, threats of murder, actual murders. There's counterfeiting. It just goes on and on and on. And, of course, there is the alleged murder of Joseph and Hiram Smith. But there is a catch to that as well, as I've alluded to in the first episode. And we'll be doing a dive on that as well to kind of see what you guys think about, well, was he really murdered? Were they really murdered? Or was there something else going on? It's pretty fascinating. So thank you guys for supporting me. I really appreciate it. And I apologize again for this taking so long to come out. Just one thing after another, but my computer crashing was terrible. But thank goodness I had most of the files backed up and was able to put this episode on my wife's computer and finish editing it. And hopefully my computer will be fixed and I will be able to get back in the saddle for next week's episode, which will be Those We Don't Speak Of Part 2. And we'll be taking up on Judge Brandeis and the Parashim, the secret society that he and Felix Frankfurter belonged to that went a long ways to forming the modern state of Israel, or at least America's part in it, which was quite significant. So thank you for your support. God bless you. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.